Well, now turn with me in your Bibles, uh, we've just sang, and ask the Lord to show us Christ through the preaching of his word, and we're going to do uh, that very thing. We pray that we see Christ in the midst of his word, so hopefully you've got your Bibles open, you've turned to 1 Thessalonians, of course. Um, I must have thought that we are going too fast through chapter 5, because we're just looking at verse 16 uh, this morning, just one verse, all two words of one verse, and I'm going to read a little bit more than that, verses 16 through 18 for our scripture reading, and then we are going to jump in. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Read that with me now. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, Lord, all praise, honor, and thanks belongs to you. We're grateful that you've gathered uh, many here to listen to uh, this sermon this morning. Father, we thank you for drawing us. We know that all that belong to you have begun to listen to this this morning because of your saving grace, the work of your spirit, creating within us a desire to hear your word, creating within us a desire to offer you an offering of thanksgiving and praise to receive our daily bread, the spiritual food which we so desperately need. That is your word, prayed, sung, read, preached, and seen. Father, we also ultimately know that all the people who've uh, tuned into this online service have been brought here providentially by you. That they're listening to this providentially in place and time because of your decree. Lord, we know that the gospel is going to be proclaimed. And so, Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would do what only the Holy Spirit can do in bringing spiritually dead sinners to life, Lord drawing them unto the Son, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and reconciling them with the Father, that they might have joy upon joy, and with all the saints, they might be able to rejoice always. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we are just going to be looking at this exhortation from the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica to rejoice always. What does it mean to rejoice always? Is this just hyperbolic language and rhetoric? Uh, is, is Paul just being hopelessly naive here beyond measure? I mean, really? Rejoice always? What does that even look like in the midst of a world with so much sin and suffering? I mean, we, we have a, a funeral for a church member this Saturday and have been counseling with a brother and sister who have just lost both their parents within six months. What does it look like to rejoice always in the midst of that? Yet Paul exhorts this church. This is, this is actually not even an exhortation as much as it is an imperative, a command to rejoice always. What do we do with that? What do we make of this? Well, as you know, as always, I like to begin each and every sermon with a big idea, a main idea. Uh, and so the big idea answers that first question of what does it mean to rejoice always? It means we ought to always rejoice. 
That's our big idea. Yeah, that took a lot of work for me to come up with that from Rejoice Always. We ought to always rejoice. That's the big idea of our text. It's certainly nothing less than that. Those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ ought always to rejoice. Now, it's going to take us the rest of the sermon to unpack exactly what that means. And I'd like to begin by examining some common misconceptions about what it means to rejoice always. Some common misconceptions. Uh, We read Paul saying to the saints at Thessalonica, and therefore, by virtue of the word to us this morning, that we are to rejoice always. But I don't think we are supposed to understand this rejoicing or this joy as simply an emotion. This rejoicing or joy is not simply an emotion. When you think of joy, most of us, it's what we think of. We think of our emotional state. We think of a feeling, and and for good reason. Uh, The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines joy as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. An emotion. Is that what Paul is communicating here to the Thessalonian believers? Always feel joyful, always experience the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires? I mean, let's just think about even the wide range of emotion that Paul has expressed and commanded within this letter of 1 Thessalonians itself. A shame and embarrassment. He was treated shamefully. I think it's safe to say that Paul felt shame and embarrassment for how he was treated in Philippi before he came to Thessalonica. Remember what happened there. He was stripped, beaten, unlawfully thrown into prison. But then even in this letter, we see in chapter 2, Paul expresses a longing to be with the saints at Thessalonica. He longed to be with them because he had been orphaned from them. We see throughout this letter Paul feeling anxiety and concern for this church, distress and affliction, fear even for their state, their status, their faith. Surely also Paul felt certain love and joy and affection for this young church. He even addresses their grieving. He says that they are not to grieve like others who have no hope. He doesn't prohibit them from grieving. He simply says they're not to grieve as if they have no hope. We also see Paul in his letter to Corinth talking about how he even at once despaired of his own life. And so if if Paul's command here is that uh, we're simply to be feeling joy, to always be feeling joyful as if this is our emotional state, then Paul even in his own writing is being duplicitous at best but hypocritical at worst. This command is not simply an emotion. Certainly it's not void of emotion. It includes emotion, but this command is not simply an emotion, nor is it simply an act. This command is not an emotion. Rejoicing or joy is not simply an emotion. It's also not simply an act. The second definition from Merriam-Webster's dictionary is uh, the expression or exhibition of such emotion. That's how they define it. Define rejoicing or joy as the expression or exhibition of such emotion. Some of you who are about my age, maybe you remember if you used to watch Saturday Night Live, you might remember the joyologist 
Uh, if you do, you would remember her continual expressions of joy, her displays of joy. What she would do is she would sit in the chair weird and she would kick her feet up in the air and she would say, I love it, I love it, I love it. She was an expert on joy, so she got super excited about everything. But does Paul here simply have the act of joy in mind? I mean, Paul did display integrity in all of his actions. His actions reflected his emotions for the most part as he narrates his own story throughout his letters. His actions seem to reflect uh, his real emotions, and his emotions seem to be appropriate to the circumstances. So when Paul was concerned and anxious for those in uh, Thessalonica, he didn't simply sing a song of praise, pray a prayer of thanksgiving, and then dance a jig. <laughs> he endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see them face to face. He sent Timothy, their co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort them in the faith. When Paul encountered the Judaizers who tempted people to stray from the gospel of God in Galatians and Philippians, he didn't delight in them. He did not rejoice because of them. Paul was indignant when someone was straying from the truth. He didn't throw up jazz fingers. Instead, we hear him ministering while weeping. And so I don't think that Paul is simply commanding the Thessalonian believers to buck up, buckaroo, and act like you got some joy in your life. Do we see that also? Paul's not promoting pretension here. He's not commanding us to simply act as if things are other than what they really are. We're not shiny plastic people who just fake it because we feel like it's the right thing to do. No. So if this rejoicing and joy is not simply an emotion, if it's not simply an act, then it is certainly also not circumstantial. Our joy is not circumstantial. I mean, let's think about this. Paul is commanding this church who is presently experiencing persecution to rejoice always. Did you know that? We, we've seen that persecution addressed all throughout this letter. From the very beginning, he told them that they were to receive, they, that they received the word in much affliction. These Thessalonian believers were suffering from the hands of their own countrymen, the very thing, Paul writes in chapter 2, that those in Judea were from the Jews. And so Paul had taught them from the very beginning that they were destined to suffer from affliction just as also has come to pass. Therefore, Paul could not possibly be conceiving of this joy as a response to delightful events. He certainly can't. This command is not contingent upon circumstances. He is commanding a church who is currently enduring persecution to rejoice always. But I suppose this is obvious for us, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest, most of us don't need to be told to rejoice always when there is an immediate and appropriate uh, thought or immediate appropriate reason for our rejoicing. For instance, when my Florida Gators won their three national championships in football, their two in basketball, and their one College World Series in baseball, all while I've been alive, by the way, that's six national championships I've got to enjoy, no one had to tell me to rejoice in that. I simply did. Likewise, uh, when uh, a, a child takes their first step, right, 
or, or uh, they, they say their first word. No one has to write to the mom and say, hey, sh- hey, make sure you're rejoicing in that. No one has to exhort the wedding party to be rejoicing. But when there's persecution from the outside and strife from the inside, when, when there is death, when there's doubt, when there is crippling pain, that's when we need to be reminded to rejoice always. And so those are all the, uh, the misconceptions about joy and rejoicing. And so if, if joy is not simply an emotion, it's not simply an act, and it's not circumstantial, all the ways we naturally conceive of joy, then what does Paul mean when he says we are to rejoice always? Well, what I'd like to give you is give a definition of Christian joy. I would like to tell you what I mean by Christian joy. What is Christian joy? Well, Christian joy is a perpetual disposition and orientation. That's what we're going to go with here. Christian joy is a perpetual disposition and orientation. That is my assertion. Joy is not simply an emotion. It is a disposition. Joy is not simply an emotion, it is a disposition. Paul uses the verbal form of rejoice or the noun form of joy 50 times in his letters. This is a central part of what it means to be a Christian. It's not simply an emotional state, but joy and rejoicing as a disposition, as a distinguishing characteristic of the Christian life. What what do I mean by disposition? I mean that joy is an inherent quality of the mind and character of the Christian. Why? Because it's an inherent quality of his or her new nature, of being a new creation in Christ. We're going to examine that more in a second. This will make more sense in a second. But I simply want to make a very careful distinction between joy as an emotional experience that comes and goes, that's constantly changing, and a joy that is a disposition, an abiding quality. Emotions change. Joy will not always be your primary emotional experience. When you encounter suffering and loss, your primary emotional experience will be sadness and grief. And and hear me, church family, that's okay. In fact, that's normal. Yet, to be a Christian is to have joy even in the midst of that suffering. Joy is an indispensable part of the Christian life. It is an inseparable part of the Christian experience. And so even when we are feeling regret, depression, and confusion, we have a joy that is deeper, wider, more full, and more real than any other fleeting transitory emotion. We do not grieve as others who have no hope. Even our grief is colored by joy. That means, by the way, when we get mad, we do not see red. We don't go full Hulk out as a Christian, right? Because even in our anger, there are tones of joy mixed throughout. When we're anxious, fearful, ashamed, disappointed, and faint-hearted, even then joy is to be present. To be a Christian is to be a person of joy. And to be a Christian community is to be a community that rejoices. So joy is not simply an emotion, it's a disposition. But joy is also not simply an act, joy is an orientation. 
Joy is not simply an act, it is an orientation. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by orientation is that joy is not a single act, like singing a song or just screaming hallelujah once a day. Joy is a direction. Joy is a bearing a course. It's a, it's a movement of the whole soul. It's not a single act, but it's the response of my whole person in life to the glorious grace we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of it this way. We are called to joy. As a perpetual state, it is part of our calling. That's what Paul writes in verse 18. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, so that means that all that I do, I do with joy. I parent with joy. I counsel with joy. I labor with joy. I sing with joy. I pray with joy. I love with joy. All that I do because joy is an inherent quality of my new nature with Christ. So joy is not simply an emotion, it's a disposition. It's also not simply an act, it's an orientation, a course, a bearing, a movement of my whole soul. But thirdly, joy is not simply circumstantial, but perpetual. Joy is not simply circumstantial, it is perpetual. Rejoice always. Our joy is to be ongoing never stopping, never ceasing. After all, what circumstance could possibly justify us not rejoicing? I mean, you think of the, uh, the Apostle Paul as our example here. If the Apostle Paul, and we know his sufferings, if he could write to those in Rome, those in Corinth, to the church of the Colossians, and he could say to them, I will rejoice in my sufferings. This is the same guy, by the way, that the Thessalonians looked to as their example in this. When he wrote to them, uh, we received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, if Paul could write from prison while in chains to the church at Philippi and say to them, rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice. I mean, can you imagine writing from prison bound with your freedom taken away from you, exhorting others to rejoice? Friends, it can't certainly be circumstantial. What circumstance would you imagine that would justify our lack of joy? Uh, the question really is this. What circumstance is there that could remove you from the love of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't that the real question? So our joy is not simply an emotion, it's a disposition. Our joy is not simply an act, it's an orientation. Our joy is not simply circumstantial, it's perpetual. And what I want to draw your attention to next is what is the source of your joy? The source of Christian joy, the source, ground, and cause of our joy is what I want to look at. What is the source, ground, and cause of your joy? Let's just think about it. What is it in? The source ground of cause of your joy, is it in temporal comfort? If the answer is yes, then your joy will wax and wane because it's not true Christian joy. Is the source ground and cause of your joy even in your family, your husband, your wife, your children or grandchildren? That, that, this hurts. But then friends, if, if the answer is yes, then your joy will be born and it will pass away. It's not true Christian joy. Is the source, ground, and cause of your joy in earthly possessions, in your reputation, status, and earthly pleasures? 
then that joy is fleeting and it will fade away. And you have yet to experience real Christian joy because what I'm talking about is permanent, perpetual, and everlasting joy. See, church family, the command to rejoice always, it's neither naive, ludicrous, nor is it cruel. It's simply a command to live out the joy that has as its source God the Father, as its ground the work of Jesus Christ, and as its cause the Holy Spirit. But if we don't believe that, if we don't set our eyes to see that, then we'll have no true joy. Christian joy is first and foremost delight in the Father. The source of joy is our new relationship with God the Father. I want you to hear this. The source of our joy is our new relationship with God the Father. Let me widen your gaze for a moment. You've been told all sorts of stories all your life. Some of them true, some of them not. Let me tell you the story from the one who has always been. You were created to know and love God, to delight in him above all else. It is the very purpose for your existence, no matter how hard you might fight against it or work against it. This is why you were created. In fact, the reality is there could be no greater joy possible than to behold God in all of his glory, to know him and to be known by him. To have an intimate relationship of familial love and tenderness with our creator. It's the very purpose by which and for which you were created. In fact, this desire is still imprinted on every single human heart. Yet because of sin, our father's sin, Adam, and our own sin, uh, that relationship has been broken. So stay with me now. That which we long for most, our only true source of joy and happiness, we were disconnected from that. We were unable to access that which our hearts long for most. And so what has mankind, humankind, all of humankind done since that very day? They have attempted to fill their hopes and desires in all sorts of things. They have worshipped the creature rather than the creator. They've attempted to find their joy in things like relationships, power, status, money, image. The list is limitless. And instead of, of a loving relationship, an intimate relationship, a familial love and tenderness, there is now enmity between them and their God. Instead of delight and acceptance, there is punishment and wrath. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, Israel is actually a very clear picture of this. It starts with Adam and Eve in the garden. They're exiled and mankind is sent out into the presence, from the presence of God. But God, in his loving, gracious kindness, calls Abraham to himself. And through Abraham, he promises to bless all the nations. And then he, he takes Abraham's seed, plural, out of Egypt and calls them unto himself at Mount Sinai. He enters into a covenant relationship with them. So in a sense, we have a reinstitution of that relationship that was in the garden. But have you read the Old Testament? God dwelled in the midst of his people, separated from his people. They couldn't really draw near to, them because, to him because they would perish of their sins because of their uncleanness. In fact, only one man once a year could enter into the Holy of Holies, a place where God's presence actually was. And even then, it was only to atone for the sins of the people. 
Does that sound like familial love and an intimate relationship with a father to you? And yet, as in the Old Testament, that's as good as it got. Sure, there were some who enjoyed intimacy with God, individuals like Abram, Moses, David, and even others. But in general, that was as good as it ever got. Now, you compare that with our relationship to God the Father now. God no longer says, tell your brother Aaron not to enter in at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is in the ark, lest he will surely die. God says to all of those who have trusted in Christ that you can enter in with confidence into the holy place through the blood of the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus is our high priest. It's Hebrews chapter 4, 6, 16 that says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Don't you see? We have God as our Father. We have the very relationship that all of humankind is longing for. He is our portion. He is ours. Psalm 511 says, But let all those who rejoice put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy. But if the psalmist could rejoice in types and shadows, how much more should we delight and rejoice in the fulfillment of all that this is pointed to? Don't you see? God is our Father, not our enemy. Rejoice! As Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 5, 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Now narrow your gaze back to your own life. If you don't have a relationship with God as your father, then you have no real joy. You may think you do, but you don't. Not an everlasting joy. If you are still enemies with God, then your joy is fleeting because its source is in things that will fade away. The joy you find in physical pleasure and earthly benefits and relationships and girlfriends and boyfriends and every other creaturely thing will be snatched away from you in the blink of an eye and your temporal joy will turn into eternal sorrow. And Christians, remember, it was the same with us. It was the exact same. We were once there. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have forsaken our lives of self-seeking and sin, we have been reconciled to the Father. Our relationship with the Father has been restored to a relationship of familial love and affection. It's what Zephaniah prophesied about in our scripture reading this morning in verse 17 of chapter 3. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This has been fulfilled in Christ. So we rejoice. So God the Father is the source of our joy. The ground of our joy is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ground of our joy is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we return to the story. God is holy and just. Each and every one of us has profaned his name, has despised his gifts, and rejected his rule. We have crowned ourselves Lord of all. Don't forget that. We deserved wrath and punishment. And I'll be blunt. 
I think many of us do not have joy. We're lacking joy because we either don't believe, understand, or remember the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We forget. Uh, we may know it intellectually, right? We, we know that Jesus lived for us. We know that. We know that Jesus fulfilled the law for his people. We can say that. We know that Jesus completed the righteousness that we needed. We believe that. We know that Jesus died for us, that he took our place and received the wrath and punishment we deserve, that Jesus was our substitute, that the righteous one, Jesus, took the place of the unrighteous ones, me and you. But here's my assertion. For many of us, Many of us, that is simply head knowledge. And I don't know if this is true. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I really do believe that your joy is a litmus test for how well you really understand and apply the gospel. Again, I'm not talking about an emotional state, how often you feel joy, nor am I talking about um, you just acting like a happy, bubbly person who's always acting joyously. I mean, if... If you go to a funeral and you're laughing hysterically, that's not joy. That's insanity. You need help. But think about it. You were at enmity with God, separated from the covenants of promise. You were without hope in this world and the next on the brink of destruction. But by the grace of God, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem you, to bring you back into a covenant relationship with a loving father, where the father says, come into my house. All that you see is yours. I will withhold nothing from you. And friends, if you grasp that reality and you don't have any joy if you cannot rejoice in that then you simply don't understand again I get it I know many of us are struggling mightily within community life what does it look like to rejoice always in the midst of such suffering I think it looks a lot like 1st Thessalonians 4 13 that when we grieve, we don't grieve like others who have no hope. We don't encounter our daily circumstances as if this is the end. But we remember the gospel. We remember that we've been reconciled with our Father and that all that belongs to the Father has been given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the source of our joy is our new relationship with God the Father, the ground of our joy is the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the, the cause of our joy is the Holy Spirit. The cause of our joy is the Holy Spirit. I'll be brief here, not because I don't love the Holy Spirit, I do, but remember the Holy Spirit desires to cast our eyes upon Christ that we might know the Father. He impresses the gospel truth upon our hearts. He renews our minds by the word lifting up our heads and turning our eyes towards Christ. I mean, joy, after all, is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who applies all that Christ has accomplished for us. So if Christ is the ground, Holy Spirit, you might say, is the water that causes the grace of Christ to bear the fruit of perpetual joy out of that ground. I mean, you remember the illustration we used just a moment ago about Israel and our new relationship with the Father? God used to dwell in a tabernacle. Where does God dwell now? And his people, perpetually present 
sealing us with a guarantee of the hope that awaits for us in heaven, with the inheritance that awaits for us in heaven. So I'm going to conclude with this one last point, and, and I'm simply going to conclude with it because I think it's the most important point. Joy is inseparable from our hope. Joy is inseparable from our hope. It's inseparable. We rejoice at our reconciliation with God. We delight at having God in our, as our Father. We rejoice in the work of Jesus that he lived and died for us. We delight in his gospel. We rejoice as a result of the Holy Spirit working within us. We delight in him as he stirs our heart to bring us to remembrance of this gospel. But we also delight in the work of the Holy Spirit that turns our gaze upon the glory that is to be revealed at the end. Church, listen to me. We can be a community of joy because we know something that nobody else in this world knows. And that is that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. We rejoice now, but not because this is as good as it gets. I mean, I love you, church family, but if, if this is as good as it gets, then Jesus is holding out on us. But it's not. The best is yet to come. That's why we can rejoice always, even in the midst of suffering. So our joy is associated with how keenly aware we are with what lies before us. I rejoice in the fact that I'm a child of God, but there are days when I don't feel like it. There are too many days when I don't act like it. I rejoice that Christ lived and died for me, but I know I've never understood that as I should. I know I have never appreciated it the way I will when I see Jesus face to face. I delight in the patient faithful work of the Holy Spirit, but I know that he has sealed me for something far better. I know that his presence guarantees something more. See, my joy is inseparable from my eschatological hope. So listen, church, what is your hope? Do you walk in obedience to this command? Do you want to rejoice always if you do then answer the question what is your hope delight in God think on Christ walk by the spirit and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the best is yet to come I, I want to conclude with, with one analogy it's not perfect but it works a woman who's in the midst of childbirth you take away the hope and knowledge that a child's going to be born at the end of that. And I don't think that rejoicing and joy would be anywhere on the radar screen. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, ladies. Send me a text, write me an email. Uh, it does not look like a joyous experience. If you've been there, you know I have, and I can tell you it does not seem enjoyable. Yet, it is a joyous occasion. Even the contractions, even the pain that comes before the child's born, all of it, because all who are there know what's about to take place. 
New life is about to enter into the world. And so the event itself involves suffering more than I will ever understand. But it is also a time of rejoicing. And and our current situation is similar. We are now in the throes of labor. But family, we know what's about to be born. Do we not, church? We know that there is a new heavens and a new earth. And so keep your eyes on the horizon. Hope for it. Long for it. And rejoice always in anticipation for it. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help in this. Gracious Father, would you cause us to delight in you more? to rejoice because no matter what circumstances come our way, Father, we have you. You are our portion and you are more than enough. Father, would you bring us to remember the work of your son, the price that he paid, the great love that was displayed on the cross? Would you help us to rejoice in that very thing? We would know even now we're seated with him in the heavenly places. Even now we've been indwelt by your Holy Spirit, always present with us. Father, what could we lack? Lord, you know how desperately your people need to hear this, to have our minds transformed and renewed. So I ask that you would help us to see that you'd help us to think rightly about these things so that we could be a people that rejoice always. We pray and ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So we are about to throw you for a loop, um, and that's because we're about to sing the song, Joy to the World. That's a Christmas song, I know. A, I love Christmas. Uh, B, I researched this, and I found out that you know that most people believe that the song Joy to the World is not written about the first incarnation, the incarnation of Christ coming into the world. It's written about the return of Christ. And when I thought about that, and I saw that song as a picture of God's people singing at his glorious return of joy, I couldn't help but to say we need to sing this. And so I want you to sing this with us And I want you to think about the words that you hear. And in the midst of that, Christian, the invitation is is let's, let's define joy and rejoicing biblically. And let's ask the question, if we are in Christ, we've got every reason to rejoice always. And if that's never been your stead, if that's never been a defining characteristic of your life, a disposition, a perpetual disposition and orientation, and friends, maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe, maybe you're just struggling and need to repent. But whatever it is that you need, please let us know. We'd love to help you and pray for you and encourage your heart. Let's sing now the song, Joy to the World. God bless you, church. I love you. Have a wonderful week.